O Lord, open our eyes so that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mouths that we might proclaim your good news. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> for a few years now, we have lived in a world of alternative facts, a world in which there are competing versions of reality. Today, you can be watching one news channel's coverage of a particular story and then turn the channel one forward or even one backward and get a completely different story. This is why when I see the new, a news item come across my Twitter or Facebook feed, I tend to always double check it. Like a good journalist, we can all benefit from the best practice of independent verification of our sources. I raised my children this way, both of whom are now young adults, in this culture of critical inquiry. Challenge what you hear and read. Pursue truth with a healthy skepticism. This disposition is necessary in a culture where spinning truth has become the norm, where we bend the facts and events into truths of our own making. But we also tend to think that this is a relatively new phenomenon. The world, however, was this way long before the phrase alternative facts entered into our vocabulary, where truth is enmeshed in facts, where our belief is swayed only by what we can prove, to what we can see, touch, feel, and test again and again to make sure that we, what we see is indeed real. We are, only, we are always disoriented by alternative facts because we are still hostages to a world in which facts matter. We are not done with facts. But has the world ever really been different? The Gospel writers understood that not only was the world full of alternative facts, for example, did Christ from, rise from the dead or did the disciples steal the body? Read Matthew's Gospel sometimes. It'll give you a new perspective on why the centurion and the centurion's witness of the empty tomb is important. But the world has always been a world where there are competing narratives about truth. To the narrative that Caesar's king, the early Christians proclaimed, Christ is king. To the narrative that death has the final word, we proclaim that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. To the narrative of fear, the gospel says, put your hope and trust in God, for it is God that will save you. In a world of alternative facts, it seems like the world has become a slippery slope. With the tumbling of one fact, the whole row of dominoes representing the truth begin to fall, one after another. It feels like the ground underneath us is less firm, always shifting beneath us. And so we lock the doors, huddle inside our own self-contained truth bubbles, walls constructed not of bricks and mortar, but of social media and news outlets that mirror our own version of the truth. In a world of alternative facts, we are afraid, and worse, we feel alone. In today's gospel reading, this is where we find the disciples. For most of the disciples, the first Easter morning did not begin with shouts of Alleluia. We find them huddled together with the doors locked, and they are afraid. For most of us, we assume that the opposite of belief 
is non-fact. The Gospels, however, tell a different story. For those first disciples, the opposite of believing was fear. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear. For fear. For fear they were locked up inside. For fear they had closed the doors to the uncertainties that lay outside. For fear of those who sought their lives, they cowered together in a house where the uncertainties within were as great as the threats from without. For the disciples, the opposite of belief was not non-fact, but fear. Now in the morning when Jesus rose from the dead, a fact that Mary Magdalene had announced to them saying, I have seen the Lord, the disciples believed an alternative narrative, one of fear. They were afraid. Afraid because their enemies were out to get them. Afraid because they believed their leader was still dead. Afraid because maybe Jesus was not who Jesus said he was. Afraid because all of the facts of the case seemed to be pointing to the prevailing narratives of the day. Their enemies had prevailed. Jesus was in the tomb, or they had taken his body. Death had won. The text shows us that there is another opponent to belief, and that is doubt. That's where Thomas comes in. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas, one of the apostles, has a bad reputation throughout the history of interpretation. Most know him as Doubting Thomas, though he is never called that by the writer of John's Gospel. Look at it sometime. Never do we see the phrase, Doubting Thomas. He is called the doubter as if this is a bad thing, as if the other disciples didn't doubt in the passages immediately preceding. One would think that we post-Enlightenment Christians would cut Thomas a little slack. He only wants some tangible evidence to see Jesus, to see his hands, to touch his side. In other words, he only wants what all of the other witnesses to the resurrection have already experienced. But if we focus on what doubt means, then the text opens up even more. You see, because doubt is not just the absence of facts, but it is the absence of presence. Notice that in each of the resurrection stories, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and now Thomas, fail to see Jesus, even when he is standing right in front of them. Faith does not overcome doubt through the presentation of facts. The facts are there. The tomb is empty. The proclamation has been made. Jesus is risen. But it is not until Jesus calls their name, for example, at the tomb, Mary, It is not until Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side. It is only when Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. It is not until these moments of presence that they suddenly believe. Jesus' presence among them overcomes their unbelief. This is the grace of unbelief. You see, belief is not something that we can simply just stir in ourselves. The gospel writer of John says that faith indeed is a gift. It is a gift created through God's presence in Jesus Christ. 
Unless we think this is just a shortcoming of the disciples, remember the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross, Psalm 22. Even our Lord is aware of how absence can create unbelief. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doubt is not just a need for facts, but it is rooted in the threat of God's absence. This world's prevailing narrative wants to tell you a different story about your existence. The world wants to say, you are the master of your own destiny. You have to make it happen, and not only that, you are alone in doing this. The narrative of your life will end in death. Those threats out there are real, and they will kill you. The world wants to say you cannot make a better world for yourself. The haves will always have and the have-nots will never have it. The world wants to say violence is the rule of the streets and peace does not have a chance in hell. And hell is the reality in which you are living. The world wants to say that the other political party rules the world and they will dismantle the world that you believe in. The world wants to say that black lives do not matter, that women will never break through the glass ceiling, that they that you do not belong because of whom you love, that your humanity will never be worth as much as their humanity. The world wants to say that you are not good enough, that you are not smart enough, and doggone it, people hate you. The world wants to say that you will never make it as a student, as a scholar, as a worker, as a leader, as a justice seeker, as a peacemaker, as a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ. And in short, the world wants to say what the tomb tries to proclaim, that death is won, the executioner has claimed its victim, and you are all alone in this world. Thank God for alternative narratives that counter the world of alternative facts. In the liturgy of the Easter Vigil, there is a great confession that grounds the entire service in truth. It begins with, Alleluia, Christ is risen, to which the congregation responds, The Lord is risen indeed, Alleluia. Try that with me. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed, Alleluia. This is a fact. This is the Easter fact. This is our reality. This is our story. This is our truth. Christ has died, but Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So because of this, we can say to fear, we can say to doubt, I do not need to be afraid of you, I believe. Say to fear, your tales of death will never carry the day. Christ is risen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Say to fear, I am good enough because God is good. I am smart enough because God is wisdom. I am doggone it, people like me because I have been redeemed. Say to fear, police brutality is not the final word. But justice will eventually rule the day because we believe in a God who lets justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Say to fear, alternative facts won't shape my reality because I have facts in three. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Say to fear, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Say to fear, it may seem like Friday, but Sunday is a coming.
Friends, say it with me together. I believe. I believe. When unbelief creeps in, and it will always creep in, when your belief begins to falter, when you begin to feel like you are all alone in the world, remember this fact. Jesus is here. God is with you. In Jesus, God's name is Emmanuel. God is with us. Remember this Easter fact. Alleluia. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia and amen.